0: Real quick reminder, next Sunday evening, it's in your bulletin for times and all that, but next Sunday evening we're going to have a question and answer time period. So I'm pretty certain I've raised some questions about the book of Revelation or some other element of end times thinking or eschatology and, well, what about this and what about that and you didn't say anything about this and on and on and on. And so we're going to allow you to ask those questions. Now, as far as the answers go, Ryan and I reserve the right to plead the fifth. And uh, so, you know, we just, you know, I'm going to remain silent on this in grounds that it might incriminate me. Uh, But, no, we'll we'll do our best to to kind of point you in a direction there. Uh, I did put a couple of weeks ago uh, a link in the um, sermon notes to a message, a couple of messages, called When Did It Happen? Or When Will This Happen? That's it, I think. Which was out of the Gospel of Matthew from several years ago. um, That may be helpful as well to listen to in advance. Um, But um, uh, anyway, so those are on our website. If you search under the uh, sermon, in the sermon archive for uh, uh, when will this happen, um, you should be able to find part one and part two of those messages. Uh, Title of our series The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The Heavenly Throne and God's Kingdom Come is the subtitle for this message. Um, That series title, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, it comes from the first verse of the book. There it refers to the revelation belonging to Jesus Christ. However, it would also be true that this book is itself the revelation of Jesus Christ. In a very real sense, that is the theme of every book in Scripture. To reveal Jesus Christ, maybe in a more emphatic way in this book. The book of Revelation is not an unveiling of God's plan for the end of time, but an unveiling of Jesus Christ as the center and transformer of history. It's important that we get that, so I'm going to say it again. And this is, if there's one point, if I had to only pick one point to make in this series, this is the point. That the book of Revelation is not an unveiling, that's what the word apocalypse or revelation means, and it's not an unveiling of God's plan for the end of time, but an unveiling of Jesus Christ as the center and transformer of history. Recall what I proposed last week, uh, looking over several chapters, that the big scroll that is introduced in chapter 5, which was sealed as securely as possible until the Lamb was murdered and raised, that that scroll that seemed to have little effect in bringing repentance was, in fact, representative of the Old Covenant. And that the little scroll, which is open for all to read, which was sweet in the mouth and yet bitter in its digestion, whoever would follow me must take up their cross and follow me, uh, is the New Covenant. And if I'm correct, then I would offer this, that the book of Revelation is a rewriting of history, a redrafting which reveals what has really been going on and how it will turn out. And since it covers history from beginning to end, it certainly includes the final judgment or judgments, as the case may be. The Lamb slain and risen, murdered yet alive, reveals not only the truth about God, but the truth about all of humanity and creation. Jesus is not one of many ways to God. He is the center of history and the sum of its meaning. With the world in idolatrous pursuit of freedom, personal kingdoms, and most importantly, self-realization, the church must come out from among them. We must witness in word and by our lives, indeed, that such freedom is slavery, slavery to money, power, and sex, that personal kingdoms are enthralled thraldom to the beasts, And that the only self-realization worth achieving is the realization of what it means to be God's image-bearer. Our lives and our message must testify that Jesus is the only true king of the world. That he is the promised good king for all. Martin Luther King Jr. said the following. He said, Most people, including Christians in particular, are thermometers that record or register the temperature of the majority opinion not thermostats that transform and regulate the temperature of society now i recognize that thermostats don't change the temperature but they are sig- significantly important in changing the temp- temperature because they're tapped into the power that will ta- change the temperature right they 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 connect that power to actual change and likewise we, as the people of God, are called to be more like thermostats, tapped into the power of God to transform and change the world. Not just to reflect what is. Since Jesus is the center of history and the sum of its meaning, believers who live in light of His gospel are dynamic change agents in history. We, we won't change the world in the world's ways, however. Our temptation is to want to change the world for God, but to do it in the world's ways, which is to not change it at all in the end. If we're going to change the world, we have to do it by the Lamb's ways, which are often those weak ways that seem, well, they're truly counterintuitive to any way that we would conceive of in this world. See, we generally prefer the way of the dragon for accomplishing the goals of the Lamb, but the Lamb will have nothing to do with that. He will not bow down. He will not... He will not turn stones to bread. He will not do any of those things in the way of the dragon. He will only walk and function in the way of the lamb, and so he calls us to do the same. In preparing for this message, I, I, I was, always have these lofty goals. I'm going to cover chapter 11 and 12, which we're going to attempt to do and somebody cut me short on time. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) By the way, that was the best announcement and call for help I've ever heard anyone give, Carolina. That was awesome. Yeah, that that was absolutely the best. Um, But where was I? Oh, looking at chapters 11 and 12, as I began to outline each of the chapters so I could kind of get a view of what's really going on here, I realize that the two chapters have the same outline. Oh, well, that's interesting. And if they have the same outline, maybe they intend to interpret each other in some way. So that's kind of going to be my approach as I walk through it. So, for instance, each begins with a scene of the heavenly temple in 11 verse 1. And actually, you should break the chapter right at the end of chapter 11, right before verse 19, because verse 19 is the beginning of the next vision. And it begins with a scene of the heavenly temple. So each begins that way. The literary climax of chapter 11 is, The kingdom of of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. That's verse 15. But in chapter 12, similarly, the climactic point is, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. Huh. Those sound a lot the same. In chapter 11, the two witnesses do not fail in their witness, even in the face of death and overcome, though they die because God resurrects them. In chapter 12, verse 11, they, that's the woman and her offspring, triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, testimony, there it is, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Interesting, the witnesses who die, the testimony of the woman and her seed who are not afraid to die, Um, In both scenes, the period of time of travail or suffering is either three and a half years, time, times, and half a time, or 1260 days, or 42 months. It's all the same period of time, in effect. All of which should be understood symbolically, as we'll get into later, as frankly every number in the book of Revelation should be understood, or in any apocalyptic literature for that matter. Well, the details of the scenes vary widely. I mean, they're vastly different in content. If you take the, them a bit out of focus, kind of like looking at an impressionist painting. You know, you've got realist painting. You know, the realism, it's going to look like the real thing. It's, I, it bores me. But impressionist paintings, I love them. Because you look at them and you know what they're painting, but yet they do it without filling in all the details. So if you take the the details of each of those chapters and you just kind of turn the focus out to where it's not quite clear, they look like the same picture. Though they're vastly different in detail. We're going to explore these chapters under four headings. Uh, First, God's temple and witnesses. Second, the seventh trumpet and kingdom inauguration. Third, God's temple, a woman and a dragon. Fourth, cosmic battle and kingdom inauguration. So let's begin under the first heading, God's Temple and Witnesses. And we'll read uh, Revelation 11, verses 1 through 13. Actually, I'm going to start by reading verse 6, and then we'll, we'll cover the rest of it in a moment. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and its worshipers, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles." They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth and with every kind of plague as often as they want. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we, we do so with fear and trembling, because your word is holy, and it calls us to have a change of heart, help us to see your word clear, clearly that we might know that change of heart and that by your Holy Spirit we would be empowered to change, be transformed into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. When John wrote, the, the temple had already been destroyed over a quarter of a century prior. Okay, Approximately 96 A.D. is when this is written and it was in 70 A.D. that the temple was destroyed destroyed. So, what temple is John measuring? Now, some, to be sure, based on these verses, specifically, date the book to sometime in the late 60s, because obviously John's measuring the temple. It wasn't destroyed yet, so it had to be dated in the late 60s. There's a certain logic to that. The only problem is is everything else points to a later dating of the book. Okay, And while I'm all for things in the text that tell me something about it, there's kind of a circular reasoning there if you're not careful. So I have to look at what if what if it is written later? Then what temple would he be measuring? And if I find a good answer for that in Scripture, and since all the evidence points there, I would say we should go with the later, <laughs> the later dating, which I, I do. It took me a while to be convinced because I was persuaded by this argument for a season. Now... Because some recognize, or most recognize the later date, some propose that this temple is a future rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. He's measuring a temple. Since this one's destroyed, it has to be sometime way off in the future when a temple is going to be built. And so they propose it's Ezekiel's temple. Uh, But there are not but a few problems with that. First, it would be impossible for a physical, actual temple to fit the descriptions of Ezekiel's proposed temple. Second, Jesus and the rest of the New Testament capture phrases out of Ezekiel and make it clear that Jesus and therefore the church are the rebuilt temple of Ezekiel. And a case in point, I just offered John chapter 7 where Jesus says, from within him will flow rivers of living water. That's right out of the story of the Ezekiel temple. And that is, in fact, about Jesus as the temple of God and ultimately, therefore, the church. Most importantly, however, I would offer this, that God would have nothing to do with such temple built in the future and its sacrificial altar um, because it would trample underfoot the Son of God and His crucifixion. Jesus fulfilled all need for sacrifice, and in His death and resurrection, they've been eliminated. The temple was torn down and rebuilt in three days with His death and resurrection, and those who die and rise in Him, the baptism ritual symbolizes that, are raised as a part of that temple. So, eliminating those two prior options, we're left with but one option, and I will offer what temple this is, and that is this. That since Revelation, beginning in chapter 4 and continuing all the way up to this point, has repeatedly and regularly talked about the temple of God and its altar in reference to the heavenly temple, that this is none other than the actual heavenly temple, the spiritual temple of God. Um, which, of course, then is the body of Christ, as we'll note in a moment. Which is that new temple. Now, how can John measure a temple and altar which metaphorically refers to Christ and his body? Now, that's a good question, right? Like, how do you get a read and measure the temple? But I think that gets to the point. John's instruction to measure the temple is, in effect, I would offer, a call for us to measure or to discern the dimensions of this temple. In other words, the call to measure tells us that the dimensions won't be obvious. The measurement won't be obvious. You won't just be able to look at it and go, it's, you know, that's, yeah, that fits. I mean, we've got all the measurements in the Old Testament. We know what that is. I mean, no. It's going to take discernment. So, what are the measurements of this temple? What are we to discern? Well, Paul tells the Corinthian church that they are God's temple where God dwells. He tells the Gentiles, the Gentiles in the Ephesian church, that not only were they fellow citizens in Israel, but they are being built together to become a holy temple in the Lord. End of chapter 2. Just after Paul defines the mystery of the gospel uh, in chapter 3, or or just after his saying that they're part of the temple, he defines the mystery of the gospel, saying that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise... In Christ Jesus, So the measurement of the new temple is Jew and Gentile brought in through Jesus Christ to make the holy temple of God, the dwelling place of God by his spirit. Now this truth may seem humdrum to us, but it was mind-altering for a first century believer that Jews and Gentiles were now being brought together. The wall of hostility, Paul tells the Ephesians, has been torn down. Believe me. We all understand what walls of hostility are. You've got relatives and former friends that you have walls of hostility with. Don't ask me how I know. (laughs) But this was a real and present danger for them that they would just maintain those walls of hostility. So we have to discern, we have to measure as John measured and realize who this temple truly is. It's measured in Jesus Christ and for all who are in him. But then that raises the question that who are the Gentiles or the nations, the ethne is the Greek word, in verse 2, that trample the holy city? If you're saying the temple is Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, then who are the Gentiles, the ethne, who trample the holy city? Well, they're the unbelieving, wicked peoples of the world, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. doesn't matter. You see, Paul also told the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 17, he says... That you should no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now who is he talking to? A bunch of Gentile Christians. Saying you can't live like Gentiles do. As if they weren't Gentiles. Because they aren't. They've been brought in through Jesus Christ. Paul actually took the things he said seriously. Even if we often don't. Well then we get to the question of who these two witnesses are. And what is their relationship to this temple. Well, Zechariah has a vision in which there are two lampstands and two olive trees. It's in Zechariah. You can read about it. Chapter 4 is a place for this. Um, and his, his whole vision was about the temple that was being rebuilt in his time. So there's a correlation. There's a connection of theme that's going on here. Um, and the, the spirit in that heavenly temple, or in that rebuilt temple, there were lampstands, and there there were olive trees, if you will, in his vision, anyway, about it. And the, the purpose of a lampstand, the spiritual purpose, is to put light in a place such that it can be seen. In other words, if you remember Jesus said, you hide it under a bushel, right? Nobody can see it. We've got the kids song. What's the point? No, I'm going to let it shine. Well, how do you let it shine? You put it on a lampstand so that it can light the whole house. That's the purpose of the lampstand. and And so... It has to do with our witness. We are to be the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Okay? And, and so the, there's a connection between these two lampstands and these two witnesses because they're the one and the same idea here. They're about sh- sh- the light of the gospel shining in the world. Uh, the seven churches in the first part of Revelation, we're told, are the seven lampstands because, why? The very purpose of the existence of the church, of this local church, of any church, is to be a light to the world, to bear witness to the inbreaking kingdom of Christ in word and deed. There are two witnesses because everything had to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the minimum standard for a testimony to be valid, a witness, word witness and testimony are from the same Greek word, but the very purpose of, of a, a, for a testimony to be valid is that there had to be two witnesses. That's a minimum requirement. So, if, if there's no other reason for why there are two witnesses, that's the main reason. I mean, that's certainly a key reason. Now, if I'm going to go beyond that and say, is there something else to these two witnesses, I, I would suggest that maybe it's, in particularly because of the context, that the two witnesses are the witness of both Jews and Gentiles in Christ to Christ's reign. Okay? We see that throughout the New Testament, this first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, this sort of distinction of them coming together. In other words, the unity of the church, the walls of hostility have been broken down. And when we live in that reality in Christ, it, it, it only confirms and adds to our witness. But it's going to be trampled. The, the, the temple, the outer courts are going to be trampled, or the holy city rather, for 42 months. Now the holy city in the book of Revelation is the what? The New Jerusalem, not the physical land over in the Middle East. Okay. And, and so if the New Jerusalem is going to be trampled, who's the New Jerusalem? Most well, the Bride of Christ. We all know these things, right? So, if the bride of Christ is getting trampled, it kind of correlates to all the other places where we find out that there's suffering, that there's difficulty, that there's um, travail, if you will, during that same period of time. What is this 42 months or 1260 days? Well, I'm going to say a lot more about it in chapter 12 when we get there, but for now... I'll just add this. Richard Bauckham did an extensive survey of the use of numbers in the book of Revelation. He's, he's a reputable scholar. He's not just some wingnut out there talking about numbers, so it's probably worth noting that. But he offered that square numbers, such as 144, 12 times 12, it's a square. Um, they're connected to God. That triangular numbers, such as 666, are connected to the beast and that rectangular numbers, now this is all geometry, so if you don't understand it, I'm sorry, but it's simple enough when you just understand rectangular is length times width, two different measurements, one time the other, not the same, not a square, that they are ambiguous. If that's the case, well, 1260, uh, 42 are both rectangular numbers. In other words, don't press for literalness. They're, they're ambiguous numbers that represent a period of time. Okay, I think there's much to that, and Other scholars have connected it to why that would be the case because of Daniel and how it's used, and and, and so there's a lot that would support that idea. If, If anyone tries to harm them, we're told, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Now that idea captures something from Elijah's ministry. Ahab had died. Wicked King Ahab. Ahaziah ascends the throne as yet another wicked king. I mean, at this point, the king of Israel was the king of Babel because they were just as wicked to their own people. I mean, Babylon was within Israel. Ahaziah falls and injures himself, so he sends men to consult with the false god to see if he's going to get better or not. And Elijah interrupts them he's told by the Lord to go <laughs> interrupt them so he interrupts them and tells them I tell you what you send a message you don't need to go all the way I'll, I'll, you send a message back to your your master the king and tell him that he's going to die because he consulted a false God instead of the true God well needless to say that didn't make the the king happy oh well, you guys get back so soon for oh well we met this guy that told us you're gonna die <laughs> yeah who was it Elijah yeah I figured so he sends a, a captain of 50 men, a, a commander of 50 of, with an army, you know, 50 to go and, and to deal with uh, Elijah. But Elijah is up on a hill and the commander comes up the hill to say, OK, you need to come down and, and we've got to deal with you. He's like, if I'm a man of God, as you say, then would fire fall from the sky and destroy you? And boom. And um, well, Ahaziah sends another 50 men and, you know. You get the point. This, this isn't going well for them. Um, <clears throat> but but here's, here's the thing to know. Elijah did nothing violent. Fire did not literally come from his mouth and consume these people. No, not at all, in fact. Elijah essentially prayed, Let it be that if I'm a man of God, that this would happen. When, when the people rejected Jeremiah, the prophet the weeping prophet. I always liked that I was named after, because my name derives from Jeremiah, and 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 uh, I always liked that I was named after a prophet until one day I realized he was a weeping prophet, and I'm like, yeah, I could have picked a better one, you know, guys, maybe, maybe, maybe another. But... <clears throat> The Lord tells him, when, when the people are rejecting his message, I will make my words in your mouth a fire, and these people the wood it consumes. So you have another reference that's picked up there in that revelation idea, did, all connected with Elijah as well. Now, again, this did not happen literally, but his words in this case brought judgment on them. They, they weren't consumed by fire in the case like Elijah's was, but figuratively that happened. Listen, these witnesses are speaking the gospel. And the gospel brings judgment, either judgment on our sins or the news that Christ bore our judgment and, and now relates to us apart from our sin. See, proclamations of judgment are interesting. In the book of Revelation, throughout the Bible, this applies to both. Have you ever seen you know, a, t- a telescope that you, know, you expand it out and then you can, can you know, pull it back together? You know? Imagine one where the, the, you know, it's not two pieces or three pieces, but it's like a hundred pieces. And so, you know, if I'm looking that way, I would I have to have somebody run the end of it out to the other end of the auditorium, and I look out this end, and I see something from what's on the lens at the far end, right? But it looks like it's right here. And I can collapse it all back up, but there's a hundred lenses between here and there. And, and when we see judgment in the book of Revelation, again, many other places in Bible, oftentimes what we're seeing is it looks like the final judgment, because I am looking through this thing, and I see pieces of that, but I'm also seeing the judgments that are and all one hundred lenses between here and there. And you can collapse it down and see it up what's up close or spread it out. But when we read judgment, the judgment of God actually began at the cross. God's judgment that He promised in the Old Testament began at the cross, where He poured out the judgment on humanity in Jesus Christ, who bore it in our place, because He became a man and bore the, the, the wrath that was due to man. That's the beginning. But for all who reject that, there's all the lenses beyond that as well. But for those who accept that, that's the end of judgment, the consummation of history for us. And so that is part of our message. But the gospel always has a mes- an aspect of judgment in it because it, igno- it, 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 it starts with the point that we are sinners. The fire from these witnesses' mouths is no more literal than the sword from Jesus' mouth. It shows what is really happening when we pray. When we pray, God is going to work and dealing with judgment on our enemies. And we pray that the first line of judgment is that He forgives their sins in Jesus Christ who bore their judgment. Amen? We pray for our enemies. But if they refuse that, there's going to be something else. And it goes on to describe how they also have this power of prayer like both Elijah and Moses had to bring plagues and so forth. But again, it's an aspect of the power of prayer that's ultimately being described there. Let's pick up in verse 7, if you will. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. But again, it's only some. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life, From God entered them, and they stood on their feet. And terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and the tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified. Note there are survivors. This is not the end of time. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Note the little bit of hope here. Unlike with the seals being released, nobody repented. Nobody had zero effect. Here, some of the survivors, what do they do? They're terrified and they give glory to the God of heaven. There's an effect of what's happening with the little scroll that wasn't happening with the big scroll, if you will. Only when these witnesses have finished their testimony, when they've accomplished what they were called to do, Will they be able to be harmed? In this case, they were killed. That's kind of harm. The beast, which is fascinating, the beast kills them, but, but he's not introduced until chapter 13. We haven't really gotten there. He's mentioned one other time prior to this, but no, again, no explanation of who he is or where he came from. is the beast. We'll get some explanation in chapter 12, which is, talks about the serpent who's connected to the beast later. But this beast kills them. And where do they lie dead? Now, this is where it gets fun. <laughs> they lie dead in the square of the great city, which is Babylon in chapter 16, easily identified as Rome there, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, two places of bondage to idolatry, where our Lord was crucified, which, again, where was that? Jerusalem. You see... The dragon is happy to control people through lies in any of those places, and any of them can embody Babylon. It doesn't matter whether it's Rome or Jerusalem, and we see that in the crucifixion of Jesus, don't we? That Rome and the Jewish leadership conspired together to crucify the truly innocent one, the only truly innocent one in all of humanity. And, by the way, Babylon can be in churches just as easily as it can be in any other civic um, gathering. In any other politic, if you will. We all remember the uh, famed Russian interference of 2016 in the presidential elections, right? Um, Most Americans believed it was true. However, their belief was that the Russians were trying to get their candidate's opponent uh, elected. In other words, the Russians are bad guys. Yes, they're interfering in our elections, but they're just trying to get the other guy elected, so you better vote for our guy, because the Russians want the other guy, or gal, as the case may be, depending on which one (laughs) you're supporting, elected, right? Turns out, the Russians are a little smarter than that. I think they're a little bit like... In this case, the dragon who is happy to control people through lies in any, anywhere. Uh, in 2017, federal lawmakers released 3,000 sample ads, and one of them just well, it's a couple of them, but they, they illustrate well what the Russians were doing, I mean, in all of this. On one Facebook page, they organized a rally promoting Texas se- secession from the Union, with images of guns and barbecues, and they, centered the, they called for a rally centering on Stop the Islamification of Texas. Okay, so That's one of their ads. Okay, On a separate page, Facebook page, this one, for United Muslims of America, they organized a counter-protest calling for a rally to save Islamic knowledge at the same place. In other words, let's get two groups of people at the same spot and get them fighting with each other. And convince them that the other people are out to destroy them. That they are the enemy. That they are the problem. You see, the Russians didn't, don't give a wit which person gets elected in any of our elections. And if you think that's the case, you're falling into their delusion. All they care about is getting us fighting so they can destroy us. That's a lot like the enemy. And by the way, it's not just the Russians. I'm sure we do it in other places too. I'm, you know, Plenty of that going on in the world. I'm not picking on the Russians. I'm illustrating how evil works through lies. The enemy would love to deceive Christians into thinking that something other than the gospel is our project that something other than the kingdom of Christ is what we are here to save and protect. Because the minute we do, then any enemy of that other thing suddenly becomes our enemy. And if you look at the worst atrocities in human history, they all begin practically, I'm sure there's an exception, by convincing people that some other group of people is out to get them. After three and a half days, which, in other words, means uh, when they're as good as, you know, when, when they're good and dead. I mean, like, two days, you know, might have a chance at resuscitation. Three days, definitely no chance for resuscitation Four days, they rot and stink. Well, three and a half days, they're good and dead. They're, they're no chance for resuscitation. This is resurrection, not resuscitation. You see, you can't really kill him because Jesus, the living one, is the living one. He is, was dead, but check it out. He's alive forever and ever, we're told in chapter 1. He has the keys of death in Hades. Now it's time for judgment, but notice the difference. With the first scroll, when the plagues were done... We read that they did not repent, but here we read the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. There's a change. There's a turning. So a trumpet sounds. Verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, or we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and, and your people who revere your name, both small and or great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. In the book of Numbers, when the Israelites went into battle, if they were losing the battle, they were told to sound the trumpets, and that God would hear the trumpet and remember them and rescue them. Well, these trumpets in Revelation are truly a call for God to come and rescue his people. Indeed, that's what we see happening here. And I wonder if the seven trumpets might, might it echo the seven trumpets in the from the account in Joshua 6, where God told Joshua, as they're going to go into the promised land, as the, the kingdom is going to come and actually be established, if you will, where he, he tells him to have seven priests carry each a shofar, so seven shofars all together, a trumpet is actually you know, have you seen the ram's horn shofar? That's what we're talking about here in trumpets. It wasn't like we see, you know, Doc Severinsen playing or something. They um, can carry these seven shofars and march around the city for seven days. And then on the seventh day to march around seven times, blowing the trumpets. And then after the seventh time, blow the seven trumpets with a long blast, followed by a shout, and the walls of the city would fall down and the kingdom of Israel would be established. I wonder, seven trumpets, it's hard to miss that connection. Hard to think that there's not at least an echo there. But interestingly, conquering Jericho was not the consummation of the kingdom. It was a foothold for the kingdom. It was the starting point, the beginning. God's reign had begun, but still had to become a fuller reality. And that might apply to our text. Note the words of the 24 elders, You have taken your great power and have begun to reign. I'm not sure this is when most people think it is, as if it's at the end of time. I think it's at the ascension of Jesus Christ when He had begun to reign until all enemies are put under His feet. We'll see if that bears any connection in chapter 12. If the parallel will help us see that, we'll see. The language is like that of the Psalms, which declare God's reign. They don't declare God's reign because all is well. They declare God's reign because they know by faith that God's reign Will win. And God does reign even when all, all is not well. Yet during that reign, and at the consummation of that reign, there will be times for judging the dead and reward, rewarding his servants and people. Like the, the telescope, all, every lens has a time for judging um, the dead and rewarding his servants and people. Times for destroying those who destroyed the earth. which which ought to cause us to pay maybe a little bit more attention to how our greed and consumption may be destroying the earth and evidence where we might be following the beast and not God's king. I mean, I've actually noticed because Christians have so tied their allegiance to their political party and the ideologies of their political party, unfortunately, that some Christians actually gloat over things that harm the environment because they're not going to be They're not going to be taken bondage by the environmentalists. Well, yeah, but God's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. So you better figure out what you're doing about that. I mean, he actually cares about the place he created. And if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, he told us to take care of it. Well, I better get back to preaching and stop meddling. Michael Goheen and Tim Sheridan in in the book, Becoming a Missionary Church, highly recommend it. Um, It's not an easy read, but it's a good read. Um, They wrote this. God's kingdom is about the power of God breaking into history to restore the whole creation. It is restorative and comprehensive, but it is not yet fully here. There remains a battle with the powers of evil for the creation, a battle that will continue to the end. The church tastes of the power of the kingdom and therefore is a sign that points to the kingdom in its life, deeds, and words. Amen. Now, we're going to take nearly as much time with the next part as we did with the first part because we've covered all the main points. But let's look at the parallel story that begins with, again, a picture of the heavenly temple. But in a more cosmic description, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain, and as she was about to give birth, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to His throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. There's that time frame again. The Ark of the Covenant. It begins, that the temple in heaven is open and has seen the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant held two stone tablets of the commandments. And on top of it, it was covered with what's called the mercy seat, which was God's throne. It is the heart of the temple itself. The ark in God's temple in heaven is the very throne of God. And it's the covenant which God made by Jesus' blood, ultimately, that it contains. It's an appropriate scene given the declaration of Christ's reign. And while experiencing this vision of the heavenly temple, John seeing this, there's two more signs that appear. First, a woman. But not just any woman. She's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars. Now I know guys, when you first get married, that's how you envision your wife, but <laughs> a little different here. You know? This is reminiscent of, of Joseph's dream. You know, Joseph says, I, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. His father, Jacob, or Israel, rebukes him and asks, Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So, so this woman clearly is representing Israel, if you will. And I think it's true that all scholars agree on that point. There might be a few that don't, some nuanced variation, but pretty much fully agreed that that's who this is, at least at this point in the story. She's pregnant and gives birth to a son. Anyone recognize the son? You know, the one who will rule the nations with an iron scepter? The one who the dragon wanted to kill from the time of his birth through Herod? Jesus, right? I mean, this is so easy. By the way, this chapter proves that you can't read the book of Revelation chronologically. You can't read it from beginning to end as if it's telling something that happens in that sequence, from beginning to end. Because here we are in the middle of the book and we're reading about the incarnation and life of Jesus, death and resurrection. Which might offer that it's actually a retelling of history and pointing to Jesus Christ as the center of history. Amen. Amen. The next sign, an enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on its head. Well, who's the dragon? Well, we're told in verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Now, what are these seven heads and ten horns? Well, it shows, first of all, a close association between Babylon, the kingdoms of this world, and the kingdom of Satan, versus the new Jerusalem and the kingdom of God, because similar language is used later of the beast and and uh, Babylon, and so forth. The message might be s- simple. Don't get deceived by all the pomp and circumstance of the empire. Don't get deceived by its opulence and supposed peace. The dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, that is who is really behind it. I think that's the message. Which is to say, even if most conspiracies... Uh, that people come up with are false, there is a cosmic conspiracy at work. Why does it seem like there's so many conspiracies? Because there only has to be one, and it's spiritual. The rest of them, at least most of them seem false. There could be a few real ones, but it doesn't matter, though, because Satan is at work behind them all. The dragon seeks to kill the male child at the moment of birth. But he ultimately fails because of the resurrection and the ascension. He snatched it up to God in his throne. He's begun to reign at the right hand of the Father. Oh, and this falls in that same part of the story. That in the previous one, you have begun to reign. Which is why I say, maybe it's not talking about the end of time. Maybe the parallelism of these stories tells us that it's talking about the ascension. The woman has to flee into the wilderness. The woman, which was his mother, is now sought by the dragon, but God will protect her. In history, in the late 60s A.D., the church in Jerusalem, the earthly New Jerusalem, that's how they understood themselves, that's how Acts chapter 2 sets the story up, is to show us that it's the earthly New Jerusalem. When when Jerusalem was surrounded, surrounded by armies... In I think it was 66 and a half A.D., somewhere in the middle of that year. Um, they obeyed what Jesus had said, that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies in the Olivet Prophecy, flee and don't return. No matter what anyone says to you, you do not come back. And so they fled. And they went to a place called Petra, a city in the middle of the wilderness, the desert. And it was called the Church of Jerusalem, but it was in Petra, <laughs> the city there. And they didn't return, and of course the armies left, but then came back in 70 AD, long history behind that, but they destroyed the city and were killing people by the, certainly the the thousands if not hundreds of thousands. I think Josephus exaggerates and says millions, but you know, the point is it was a bloody massacre. But not one Christian was killed in that time because they obeyed Jesus. And I I don't know. that it, it seems that that illusion is being brought. She flees to the wilderness. But that, even though that had happened in their history, that's a picture of how God cares for His people. He speaks to them. He warns them. He protects them. Even if they have to go to a wilderness place, He guards them. Because this woman is Israel, but is the true Israel, which now is post-Jesus, the church, which, by the way, isn't replacing, it is the same. It's not a replacement, it's the fulfillment. It's the center of Paul's gospel, that point. And then finally, and I know I'm over, but this is a brief point. Re- cosmic battle and kingdom inauguration. Let's read verse 7, read the, the end of that 12th chapter real quick. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. It's called the church, faithful ones. Verses 7 through 9 describe a battle in the heavens. It doesn't tell us when this is, but if we take it in the flow of that scene, it likely describes what Jesus was talking about. For instance, in Luke ten, verses eighteen and nineteen, after the seventy two disciples return, rejoicing that even the demons submit to, to to them in Jesus' name, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Or in John twelve, right before he's going to the cross, speaking about his death. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So the cross was a time for judgment on the world in a number of ways. Uh, not the least of which is the judgment of guilt for crucifying the only truly innocent ones. Uh, innocent one. Uh, human kingdoms at their finest, whether Gentile or Jew, failed. Failed. The dragon was driven out. He was defeated by making him think that he won. He won. He killed God's son. (laughs) Oops. That didn't work out so well for him. As Luke tells the story, remember the story of the the Gerasenes demoniac? Guy that's got a whole army of demons in him? Legion. (laughs) That's what that means. They begged Jesus repeatedly, as Luke tells it, not to order them into the abyss. I and mean, that, that's the ultimate casting down is to go into the abyss. It doesn't get lower than that. So they beg to go into the pigs instead that are, that are over here on a hill. And so Jesus says, sure, go in the pigs. And, and what do they do? They go run off a cliff and fall into the abyss. I mean, you see. Which is to say that, okay, I can spare you the abyss for the moment, but it's inevitable for you. And nothing I do here is going to change that. Here. In Revelation, it's quite clear that this is not the end of time since the dragon is now in pursuit of the woman and her seed. It's a time of suffering. It's a time that we are in as God's people. And finally, what are these two wings of the, of, of a, as of a great eagle? A woman's given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. When God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt and they finally get to Mount Sinai in chapter 19 of the book of Exodus. He says to them, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, to the church, to the rest of her offspring, he says the same. That's why Peter gives that same description to the church, kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. God promises His persecuted people that He will carry them and deliver them from the clutches of the empire, just as He did the Israelites out of Egypt. He will do it to the people out of Rome, and He'll do it for us in whatever captivity to empire that we find ourselves in. And this language of time, times, and half a time, it's right out of Daniel, And it is ambiguous, as I said earlier. It it corresponds to the three and a half years, the 1260 days, the 42 months. Trimper Longman, in Revelation through Old Testament eyes, explains that it isn't intended to give us exact times, but to say that this time of suffering has a definite end. It will look like evil will actually gain momentum. It moves from time to times. It's gaining momentum. But then it'll be cut back before the end, half a time. It starts to fail before it's finally cut off. That's how evil works in the world and against God's people. It gets intense in the middle. But God tells us it will be, in a relative sense, short, and, and it will end. And the river that spews from the serpent's mouth are the ever-flowing rivers by which the ancient serpent, Leviathan, seeks to create chaos in the lives of humanity. We read about these in the Psalms. It's the ancient waters of chaos in the seas that in Genesis 1 had to be divided from the land, but now they come to destroy. Any time where water and land start to mix again, destruction happens, but God swallows it up, working everything together for good, using it to create a stream of water in the desert to cause things to flourish. Amen? Listen, I know I've gone over, and thank you for your time, but Babylon exists wherever human society becomes empire and asserts its power over creation in a way that only God should. New Jerusalem exists wherever people resist that way and place God at the center of their shared life. Discerning these is often difficult. If Jesus Christ is the center and transformer of history, what does that say about the importance and priority of the gospel? I mean, is the gospel merely a private matter or is it public truth? I mean, did Jesus die for the sins of the world or just for us? I think it's public. I think he's the center of all history. What does it say about the importance of how we live, of our lives in a world that is living against history itself? See, we we live against history, the way the world looks at it, but it's truly the other way around. We are living in the flow of history because Jesus Christ is the center and ultimately the end of history. What does it say about what it means to be a, a, a lamp put on a lampstand shining in a dark place? Are we, are we swallowing the lies that the dragon sends out, trying to destroy as much as anyone? Or are we standing against the lies with the truth of the gospel? These are all questions we have to think about, contemplate, explore in our own lives. May the Lord give us grace to do so. Heavenly Father. Help us to see that from heaven's vantage point, we have one of the most crucial roles to play in the world because we are an outpost of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the ultimate and final kingdom of this world that will finally and once and for all bring your good promised king that no other kingdom can provide. In Jesus' name.